The following talk was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold Roshi during a Fusatsu ceremony at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. I was remembering before we came out this evening to begin Fusatsu of how Dada Roshi in the early years when <clears throat> Buddhism was even younger than it is today, which is still very young in the West. And there were many, many ideas about what it was and what it wasn't. It was iconoclastic, it was anti-liturgy. And Dadaroshi would say that he felt like it was very important for us to learn how to bow. To bow to the Buddha, to bow to each other, to bow to the earth, to no reverence. All evil karma ever committed by me since of old. What are we to do with ourselves? <laughs> well, the Buddha had some thoughts on that. In the Dhammapada, it says, the mind precedes all mental states. Mind is their chief. They are all wrought from the mind. If with an impure mind a person speaks or acts, suffering will follow them like the wheel that follows the foot of an ox. He also said, hatred is never appeased by hatred in this world. By non-hatred alone is hatred appeased. This is an eternal law. And there are those who do not realize that one day we all must die. But those who realize this settle their quarrels. How can you get peace in the family? For 2,500 years and more, Buddhism, beginning with the Buddha's lifetime devotion to the question of this quarrel, and how we get peace in the family has really been the singular focus of Buddha Dharma. The Buddha said it is not in the realm of gods or spirits or deities. It is in our realm as human beings. It's our business. We are the creators and the destroyers. And so we have to know clearly what binds us, what motivates us, what blinds us. We have to become in intimate contact with everything we want to avoid. Simple things like thoughts, emotions, memories, ideas. What we do not examine remains unexamined. It seems self-evident but apparently not. And all the while, our original face, which is always present, cannot be understood, cannot be realized, cannot be lived in full, if we do not examine. And so we examine. We study, we reflect, we practice. We bring that study into 
our moral lives, because the Buddha said that's what our lives are. We live in a, human beings live in a moral universe that we create. We do it with our mind, by gaining entry into our mind, being able to actually know our mind, and we do it by going beyond. So that, as Master Linji said, we can become a true person of no rank. We can, in a sense, fulfill or step into fully our enlightened mind and nature and realize that that mind and nature is in and of itself peaceful, loving, compassionate, patient, courageous, And so we study the teachings which remind us of this constantly, constantly, in a hundred different ways, in 10,000 different voices, throughout generations and cultures and rises and falls of dynasties and empires and all of it. A consistent drumbeat of a teaching the troublemaker, after all, as, as it says in the Wuman Khan, is us. The peacemaker, after all, is us. And so we study the precepts. What does it mean to be live in a moral universe? What are the things we should pay attention to? What are the things that have been shown over and over in every generation to be the primary causes of our bondage to our attachments. We take vows. We commit ourselves. We commit. This is not a practice of ambivalence. Tadaroshi used to say, it's not a tourist kind of thing. (laughs) Sometimes people would come in in the early years and want to know, can they just sit in the back and watch people practice? And Tadaroshi would say, no, you cannot. We discover how, or discover anew and more deeply, to take responsibility. And being moral beings, living in a moral universe, means we we come face to face with our moments when we're not living that way, and we atone. We see the ways in which we carry the wounds of those actions that were caused by others upon us, And we learn to forgive, to give up the right to hold a grudge. We actually, in actual time and space, practice selfless compassion. And compassion, remember, is not just a feeling. It's a dedication to want to alleviate suffering in doing that. Shantideva said there's adopting Bodhicitta, the desire to alleviate suffering, raising the aspiration, and then there's attending bodhicitta, which is actually living it, doing it. And the teachings say that when we live and practice within compassion, loving kindness, that our fear lessens, and our confidence in ourselves and the world increases. 
and we gain a kind of inner strength and that love and compassion brings us closer. And that's really important to appreciate that, that when we don't, we are not compassionate, not loving, we cannot come closer. We can't come closer. It sends us apart. And of course, we see that demonstrated everywhere. And in that, the teachings say that as we cultivate this great love of the bodhisattva, compassion, patience, generosity, the paramitas, it gives us a sense of purpose. It's like, oh, oh, that's what life is about. That's why I'm here. And that this can be especially important when things are difficult. So that the difficulty does not eclipse everything. And we realize that, is, that that sense of purpose and meaning is much more powerful than anything, a career, a relationship, power, status, wealth. As important as some of those can be, and meaningful in their own way. That the power of love and compassion is so much stronger. And the thing about it is, it goes with you everywhere. Right? You never retire from it. You never use it up. It can't be stolen from you. You can't lose it. It can never be revoked. Your compassion will never be fired. <laughs> right? Or made redundant. AI cannot replace it. <laughs> How wonderful. So we raise bodhicitta, this great aspiration, which means that we have the, the courage, perhaps even the audacity, to commit to a life of kindness, the audacity to do such a thing, the boldness to commit to cultivating patience, non-harming, to actually being a benefit to the world, to each other. And then we live that commitment. And that requires, by necessity, that we li be living a moral life, an ethical life, a, path, a life of peace. And so it's wholly appropriate that we reflect on this through Fasatsu on this night, which in a certain sense is just a night, <laughs> like any other, but in perhaps most, if not all, societies, human societies, it's given a particular meaning. From a Buddhist perspective, splendid. Let's use that. If we're going to build a new year in empty space, let's build it well. And recognize that love and compassion is the most basic aspect of our humanity which means we can always be cultivating it. We can always be generating it. We can always strengthen it. It's limitless in its ability to be limitless. Which means we can draw upon it. We can turn towards it, take refuge in it at any time, in any place, under any circumstance. That doesn't mean 
that it's always going to be easy. Sometimes it's going to be the most difficult thing, even though it's never anywhere else. It means we get to use our intelligence, our experience, our reflection, our creativity, our faith, to make it stronger, to make it more useful. That's why Avalokiteshvara has so many hands. There's so many things to be using. And that the main instruments to bring it forth is what we use every day, our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And the Buddha said, then we need to let it radiate out in all directions. Radiating compassion, love, kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies, downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, standing, walking, sitting, lying down, free from drowsiness. We should sustain this recollection, sustain this commitment, this aspiration, this thought of enlightenment, bodhicitta. This is said to be the sublime abiding, the most sublime way to be. Who doesn't want to live in sublime abiding. And the Buddha described that not just as a poetry, but as a meditation. That in our meditation, we manifest, we bring forth compassion, loving kindness, the immeasurables, and we radiate them out in all directions with our mind. And that the more we do that, the more facile, natural, integrated, powerful it becomes. And then the more naturally we can do that off of our cushion. And a teacher said in this that there are two ways we can think about others. One is we can think about others as having the same, wanting the same happiness that we do and wanting to not have suffering the same way we do. And in that to sort of bring to mind and reflect on our sameness. We all want that. He said there's another way to view others and we can think of it, others in terms of how they're different. Nationality, country, race, ethnicity, language, wealth, poverty, education, religious tradition, and so on. He said, the first way of viewing others does not give rise to attachment and hatred in our mind. The second way does. It creates a biased attitude of us versus them, which creates the basis for the idea of friend and enemy. And even within that, seeing someone over there who is different, and even if we cultivate a kind of love for that person, this teacher said, still, it's ultimately based on a bias, a willingness, acknowledging the difference, still believing in the difference, but trying to rise above it. Now, that's not a bad thing. But he said, when this is the case, just as though, just as we're raising that love or compassion in that moment, in the next moment, hatred can arise. And of course, we see that. Discriminatory feelings can change at any moment, and they do. They're impermanent. So love becomes hate. Trust becomes distrust. Attraction becomes repulsion. All that we have in common becomes everything that makes us different. Today's allies are tomorrow's enemies, over and over. This is the story. 
we have told and believed in and lived over and over. There's another way. There's another way to view others. To recognize that every person acts out of their karma, their karma extremes, their inner and outer conditions, which both condition and influence their actions, but also the person themselves. And in that way, their experiences seem valid and real and to make sense, even if it turns the world upside down. And we do that too, until we examine and see what's really happening. But that can help us to cultivate compassion. And then there's another way of viewing others, that each and every one is empty of any essence, intrinsic identity, anything to attach to, to create a bias about, as anything that is fixed and solid and is who you are. To liberate the basis of bias. All of these views are the basis for cultivating compassion. Different ways of reflecting, of looking differently in a way that is each in their own way in accord, more in accord with the way things actually are. Shantideva said in that both myself and others are the same in wanting happiness. What is so special about me that I strive for my happiness alone? Why do I consider my happiness more important than yours? In that both myself and others are the same in not wanting suffering, what is so special about me that I protect myself but not others? That's really the view of the bodhisattva. Given that as the Buddha recognized, we hold ourselves most dear. Right? When you stub your toe, when you hit your head, when you break your arm, I can have deep empathy for that and feel ill, feel pain. It's not your pain, but actually feel pain that you're pain. I can feel sympathy. I don't feel pain, but I, I'm sorry that you're feeling that. But this is something more. Because those, powerful though they are, are feeling-based. And what do we know about feelings? They come and go. They're fickle. If we're relying on the feeling to be compassionate, when the feeling of compassion isn't there, compassion isn't there. For a bodhisattva, that's, that's not working. We have to cult just in the same way that we spent the week cultivating mindfulness and concentration in moments where you thought you had none left or had no patience left or had no faith and trust in yourself left. Love and forbearance are considered as the sort of antidotes to hatred. Compassion and love are, are referred to as, as sort of the embodiment of non-hatred. But they're different. Because again, compassion is wanting actively to eliminate or reduce, mitigate, alleviate suffering. Whereas love is, arises when we observe other sentient beings from the perspective of their well-being or the well-being that we wish for them. And we want that for them. 
So compassion is actively wanting to alleviate, diminish the suffering. And love or loving kindness is wanting to bring forth the happiness, the joy. Obviously, they work together. And love is sort of defined in the system of mental factors as having observed sentient beings, we think how wonderful it would be if they had happiness, and we want that for them. And the function of love is to help pacify resentment, our rage, our ill will. There's a sutra in which Manjushri asks one of his disciples, daughter, how do you explain non-hatred? And she says, oh, Manjushri, it is that which stops animosity arising in the mind and prevents the harming of any object. This is how I understand forbearance. And in my early studies, I, in the paramita of patience, I really connected with patience. I began to see how important it was. I began to see how impatient I was and how painful that was, how much trouble I caused for others when I, and out of my own impatience. But I didn't really understand forbearance so much. But then I began to see more and more in so many situations that I could not really control, that were hard, difficult, and persistent, and that I needed to forbear. I couldn't just avoid it. I didn't want to avoid it. I couldn't just make it change. I didn't have that power. And so I began to understand the importance of forbearance, of being able to bear what is difficult to bear. And the key here from the point of view of the bodhisattva is to do that with an open heart, with a mind that is pliant, soft, alive, spirited. Shanti Deva says, everyone who is happy in the world is, is so because they want other people to be happy. Those who suffer in the world are so from wanting themselves only to be happy. That ultimately we cannot know true happiness, we cannot know true peace if it's only for ourselves. So all of these teachings are pointing to the need to tame and calm or free that powerful, those powerful forces that are all in the family that Buddhism calls aversion, not wanting this. And to do that with patience, by generating, not just by trying to let go of the hatred, let go of the fear, let go of the ill will, but actually at the same time generating the patience, generating generosity, generating that desire, not only for ourselves, to be free of that anger, but in the moment when we're anger, angry or we're filled with hatred or we're afraid, to actually not just be, become sort of centered on ourselves, but think, oh, there are so many people in the world right now who are feeling this exact same thing. Oh, it's so hard. And so in that moment, we become larger. That strong emotion doesn't bind us so much as it, becomes, it helps us to be larger and helps us, us to include others and want for them in the same way we want for ourselves. These are practices. These are things we need to bring to our mind to be actively cultivating.
And it said that there's forbearance that we need to practice when we need to just accept certain aspects of suffering that we experience because we can't escape them. We can't control everything. And so sometimes we just have to carry it and try and carry it lightly with our eyes open and even put it to work. Shantideva said, if there's a remedy in such a moment, then what is the use to feel upset? What good is that? If there is no remedy, if there's nothing you can do, then what is the use of feeling upset about it? It seems so simple, right? (laughs) But it's so powerful because what he's saying is the upset is extra. It's not helping. If there's something we can do, do that. Apply ourselves. If there's nothing we can do, acknowledge that. There's nothing I can do. The worry, the upset, the resentment, and all the rest, the Buddha called the second arrow, it's not helping us. But it takes a lot of energy. In that resentment or upset or anger, we're devoting a lot of energy. Not so skillful. Couldn't that be used in a better way? There's the forbearance of facing what is real. I've always been struck by this. Because these other forms, it's like, yeah, shit's happening. Life is hard. People are crazy. Right? And so to, to forbear in the presence of that kind of suffering, but here, this very almost subtle, very quiet, it's like, oh, by the way, in the midst of all of that, when you actually just turn towards what is true, have forbearance. Why? Because it can frighten us. And so to be able to actually hold that discomfort, as meditators, do you not know this? (laughs) Facing what is true, whether it's true in samsara, or whether it's true as you're approaching something of your true nature, how we can start to shake and become anxious and want to get away from that. Even if it's the very thing we've been applying effort to come closer to. And so to have forbearance, to just hold that and let it calm. And then there's the forbearance of not retaliating when things happen to us, when people do things to us, not retaliating, not seeking revenge, which we can. We can do that. That's a choice. And the Bodhisattva says, I choose not, because that just keeps going. When we retaliate, towards someone who has done something to harm us, they forget that they did something to harm us. They're just thinking now about how we harm them. And it just cascades. Patience is not passive. It means to not react impulsively, which means we have to 
be able to be in this mind, this body, this emotion, this present moment, this situation, to be in it and not turn away and be in it skillfully. As I said this morning, mindfulness has that quality, that exquisite quality of openness. It is open. It is an open door. And so that as we come close and, and touch keenly and come into intimate contact, that we don't get entangled, there's detachment. We don't get entangled. We see, but we don't tie a knot. There's a sutra that says, that which is called compassion sees every being as dear. And so Dadaroshi says, we need to learn to bow. When we bow to something, to someone, to a cushion, to our food, to the person sitting next to you, to the Buddha, to our teachers, we're expressing sameness, we're expressing Buddha mind, we're expressing gratitude, we're expressing Oh, how dear you are to me. Compassion, it says, enables all beings to trust. It is the foundation of faith for those who fear the terrors of samsara. Fear in a good way. <laughs> Don't want that anymore. It places beyond sorrow those who have good mental discipline practice, and is the basis of refuge for those who lack protection, who are seeking protection from samsara. And this is a protection not of hiding, but of being able to forbear. And so in that refuge, we remember that we are one with the Buddha. And so we raise bodhicitta, that we are unified with the Dharma, and so we study the teachings, make them our own body and mind, live them. And we realize that we are the Sangha. And in that way, we realize living in a moral universe as a moral being, we kind of have a responsibility because we are influencing. And you can't opt out. That's the thing. By virtue of our being here, we have influence. And so there's a sense of providing an example. First, provide an example to yourself. Of course you can do this. Of course you can do this. Buddhism has no debate about that. And then we can provide an example to others. Not by even so much trying, but just by being. Be authentic. Be a practitioner. Be a bodhisattva. And so as we finish the fasatsu and sit a few minutes before midnight, and then we'll do, we do our evening, our New Year service, and everyone will have a chance to offer some incense, and that's a time when you're invited to make a commitment, a vow, a pledge, a solemn promise, 
to your life, to our lives together, and, and how in that moment and in this new year you'd like to focus that, bring that into focus. What will help you? What will help you help us? And so, having built this in empty space, let's use it. Put it to good use. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.